morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A blessed Pentecost season as we gather around God's Word this Thursday, July the 21st, as the light of Jesus shines on us from Genesis chapter 38. It is, well... Uh, it, it gets more interesting. We have the Joseph story, and now we get to chapter 38, where it takes a little bit of a back seat, and we get to Judah and Tamar. Uh, well, something that I, I guess the only way to do it, to look at this appropriately is one, to make sure we focus our eyes on Jesus, and we hear the word of God, knowing that although it's not always a perfect story, it is God's story. So open up your Bibles, put on your Christ goggles, for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we welcome back regular guest, Pastor Stephen Tice, vacancy pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor Tice, uh, happy Pentecost and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thank you, sir. What's uh, the Pentecost season to you and the rest of the crew up there in Minnesota? Um, my my wife and I had been at a family reunion in South Dakota, but a number of those folks are uh, originally from Minnesota. They uh, grew up in the western end of the state, so Minnesota wow. North, to be precise. Yeah, absolutely. Right. What yeah. do you know? What yeah. town they're from? This is a big deal to northern Minnesotans. But Ortonville, oh, of course. Yeah. Yep. Right on the border. See, see, there's there's yeah. times in Minnesota that we do wonder. Mm -hmm. Are the people on the border, are they true Minnesotans or not? And so what do you think? Yeah, well, think they were? Oh, yeah. Yeah, these, these are diehard Viking fans. It's just impossible. They now, they now live elsewhere, Missouri, Kansas, and, and you can't get them out of the Viking bloodstream system. It's just, it's, it's a problem. But, well, then I, then I like them as well. I like them as well. <laughs> Pastor, anything else going on for you? Anything going on for you and Emmanuel? Well, we, the congregation is in the call process. Uh, they have asked for and received a, a number of names as possible candidates to be called as their pastor. And the call committee is reviewing those names and then the process of, of preparing to bring recommendations to the voting members. Uh, not quite there yet, but we're praying the, the Holy Spirit's blessing and guidance on that process have been since we started a, you know, a year ago. So uh, we're asking others to keep those prayers going for Emmanuel, but also for other parishes seeking the pastor God has for them. And also then, as, as the Lord reminds us, to, to ask for laborers to be raised up into his vineyard. Well, and that's a good reminder for all of us. In my new role as district president, there is just a lot of vacancies, and there's a very proper and good order to finding a new pastor. And part of that, like you just said, is you pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, because you know what? He does answer those prayers. And so that's what I encourage you, our listeners, to pray for those churches who do not have an under-shepherd, and that the Lord would work through the process, of course, according to your word. So, Pastor, well, we're here to look at Genesis 38. Can you begin our time and ask the Lord's blessings in prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good and gracious God, as you have called us into your family and made us your people, you have also gifted us with the promise of inheritance. That promise 
goes all the way back to your words to Adam and Eve in the garden, passed down through Abraham and through his family. In our review today, we see how you continue to keep your promise, even as human beings are less faithful and continue to seek their own way. Lord, bless our work together in your service. Bless our study of your word. We especially ask your healing hand on those who are ill and those affected by infections or injuries. We remember especially those who've been diagnosed with COVID in our country today. We're aware of the president having that problem, but also immediate family members. For those of us who know of those situations, you've known of them before testing occurred. But Lord, we ask your continued care and attention to the needs of your people physically as you've already attended spiritually through Jesus our Savior. Bless our hearing of the word today. Bless our learning of your truth today. Thanks for the gifts you've given. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Reminder to your listeners, if you have any questions concerning our text today from Genesis chapter 38, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, or call us on this live study, uh, 314-821-0850, 314-821-0850. Now, Pastor, as we look at our text today, I would like to go just a little bit at a time, but I wanted to hear your first thoughts. How do you want to start us off on the right foot in Genesis 38? Well, I think the, the key thought here is remembering that, that the story has been following the, the family of Abraham down his sons, Isaac and Jacob, and he saw the tension there. And now we've been looking at Jacob's life. And as we looked at Joseph's story, we've seen that God's going to shift the focus out of the land of promise into a place that eventually becomes captivity. But right in the middle of that, we have Judah who says, let's not kill him place him in, a, in the cistern. We don't want the blood of our brother on our hands. And the plan is to keep him. Reuben says, we'll protect him. And, and Judah says, let's not kill him. And now Judah is part of the story of God's promise that continues in a way that most of us would say, well, that's not the way that should have happened. But in the <laughs> process, it's, it's God working around our efforts as much as through our efforts to accomplish his objective. And so we look at this chapter, it really is a, a segment where we say, these guys aren't doing the right thing. Much like you and me, frequently not doing the right thing, and yet God keeps accomplishing much through us. So, so we look at this, this chapter, it's, it's God doing his work even around human efforts to come things, to put things together their own way. And it is interesting for us because we can often get this perception that in the Bible and in our churches, that everything kind of goes on a trajectory that just gets better and better and better. And, <laughs> and, and, but, and that's why sometimes we might get that impression too when we read a history book. You know, a church celebrates 125 years and you, you, you mm -hmm. highlight the good things. I mean, you're not going to highlight all the bad things. Yeah. And so you get that perception. So then all of a sudden you're sitting in a congregational meeting and people are arguing and stomping out or there's, there's a, like a president of the congregation that, that, fell from grace or a pastor fall from grace or a DCE or something. And you're just like, what's going on? This never used to happen. And then you read uh -huh. Genesis and you realize, no, it's, it's not, we're not on this trajectory <laughs> of getting better yeah. and better. We are dying and rising in Christ every single day. Pastor, anything else? Yeah. Uh, just, uh, just that God uses people that you and I would not necessarily pick to deliver the world's Redeemer to us. And you get to the book of Matthew and you read back through the genealogy, you keep coming across these, that's not who you would have picked kind of people. 
and kind of starts here in this second chapter. I love it. So let's start digging in. Genesis 38, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version, uh, beginning verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur... Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord Yahweh, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord Yahweh, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Well, Pastor, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts here. There's a, a mm, very unique yep. family dynamic, no doubt. This would make some awkward moments in the uh, coffee time and around the table at the family gatherings. Pastor, where mm -hmm. do you want to start us off? Well, I think we start with, with this understanding that what happens is that Judah departs from his brothers. And, and the, the, the very simple movement is that he's separated from his brothers when he starts this event. Now, up to this time, God has not commanded them not to marry. But if you remember, it was Esau who married the Canaanite women as wives and grieved his parents. And, and Jacob was sent back home to get a, a non-Canaanite wife. So the, the, the theme of Canaanites being a challenge has already shown up here in, in Genesis, and it'll continue into Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through Joshua and beyond. But, but the, uh, the thing is that he, he leaves the family and goes and finds a friend of his who's called uh, an, a Dulamite. And, and Hira is visiting his good buddy when he sees this woman he wants to marry, which is on the one hand legitimate, but on the other hand, the, the theme repeats that the Canaanite marriage doesn't work out well. But the other thing is they have children, and, and the first one, Ur, is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. He's, he just... The Lord, the Lord takes him. He says, no, I won't tolerate that. And so we have the, the legal, biological son, heir, if you will, of Judah. And God says, nope, not that one, and takes him out. And then the next boy born is Onan. And the command has not been recorded yet that the son of the heir has to have another heir, so the brother will produce it by marrying the, the mm -hmm. widow, and, and the first child born is counted as heir. That's not a legal requirement recorded yet. It shows up later in the, the books of Moses uh, as the people of Israel enter the wilderness. There the, there the command is given. It's not been recorded yet here, but the practice is clear. 
And so the obligation to Onan then is to produce this offspring. And he doesn't want to because he knows the child will legally be her son. Now, what's going on in the family dynamics here isn't recorded, but there's clearly some kind of tension, resentment, rivalry, whatever you call it. And as I repeatedly tell people, the book of Genesis is the account of the dysfunctional families of, of Abraham. And it's, it's it, evident here. It, it's all oh, it's. I think it, I think it's an understatement to say that it's evident. We we spoke we spoke quite a bit in chapter thirty six about you know we speak of, it speaks often do not marry a Canaanite, but yet Esau did. Now we see it here, and I want to hear from your perspective, Pastor. We've talked about it quite a bit, but it it can kind of hit the ears a little bit weirdly. It's kind of like saying, well, you know, back in the day, well, that Lutheran can't marry that Catholic or that, you know, that person from mm-hmm. Wadena can't marry the person from Staples in Minnesota. Uh, that's just sure, sure. not OK. And to us, that kind of hits the ears a little bit weird in our culture because we're kind of like, well, we live in freedom. So what was the reason why yeah. this Canaanite marriage was an issue? Well, this this is an important part of, of the distinction we have living as Christians in a time when the gospel has freed us from the demands of the law. We also have been reminded again and again that Christ died for all, and that all people stand in the same position of sin paid for and redeemed, even if they don't believe it, the debt's been paid. But what God was doing at that point in time was keeping his people apart from those that would then lead them into a false belief or a false worship. That particular challenge shows up again and again when we look at how the Canaanites pull people away from the worship of the true God. And the book of Joshua is explicit about how that happens. Once the generation that came out of the wilderness dies off, you know, the, the neighbors are the problem. And so what God is calling us to is, is to be aware that we put ourselves in spiritual danger by our associations. And the, uh, the term Paul uses in the New Testament is, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever or teamed up in a way that puts the team at a dysfunctional uh, disadvantage, if you will, that, that you're not pulling the same direction, unevenly, unevenly yoked. If the person you're married to does not share faith in Jesus Christ, then you've got a serious problem. It's not that the marriage can't work, it's that the marriage has problems added that it doesn't need added. And God wants to protect the people from that. And so the Canaanites, by misidentifying the true God, uh, would it automatically put the family of Abraham and the followers of Abraham and those who walk in the faith of Abraham to this very day in spiritual danger, which is why we, we caution people about marrying outside of the faith. Now, when you're marrying somebody that's not of the same Christian denomination, the problems are slightly different, but there mm-hmm. are still dangers that are there. And it gets back to how do we as Christians come to a, a statement of what we believe and so we look at the Word of God and let the Lord lead us through the Word. But if you have a church body that doesn't read the Word the same way or has different rules for reading God's Word, they can't end up in the same place. And so it's, again, an unnecessary tension. And ideally, we'd like all those divisions to be gone, but that won't happen until Jesus comes back. And that's a great, that's a great way to put that, because we believe in the power of God's Word, we believe in the Holy Spirit changing hearts, not ourselves. But we also want our 
couples to be united as we see in Ephesians 5 and in other parts in Scripture when it talks about marriage. And it all assumes that there's a connection in faith, there's a connection in Christ, because that marriage reflects Christ mm-hmm. and his love for the church. And, and, and that's what we pray for. And I encourage our listeners to pray for couples. I have a, a, there's two weddings this weekend that I'll be attending and one that I will be performing. And it's such a joy because they're, they're Christian couples. They're they're working through everything. They love God's word. And I mean, it's just a time to celebrate. And so that's something we, we celebrate and we pray that our young people are able to find. But Judah didn't follow that. <laughs> that's the key thing we're seeing here. He did not mm-hmm. follow that. And it was a snowball effect that led to more yeah. sin, more sin, and more issues. Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. And well, the thing is that Judah has made a promise and said, I remain a widow until my son Selah is grown. And then he says, lest he also die like his brother. So the motive Judah has here is protecting his, his lineage, his line, his heir, as he sees him. And his, his whole focus is not on what is the right way to relate to Tamar and her commitment as his daughter-in-law, but how does he preserve his third son that he's, well, nervous, I guess, about the Lord taking him too, um, because he's, he's clearly aware that God took the other two because they were disobedient. The Lord, the Lord took them. Nobody killed them. They, you know, the Lord took them. Um, so what I see here is the fear. The fear that motivates people is evident in Judah. And, you know, we know people in our society, our time, our own families, have been motivated by fear. And it's so, so difficult for us when fear is, is driving us to remember that perfect love casts out fear. And the only perfect love we have is, is the one God brings us in Jesus. And so we look at within Christian congregations, as you mentioned, within families, in nations, in, in communities. People are afraid of something. Usually they're afraid of, of a change that might bring a loss or fear of, of losing identity or a position of respect or whatever it might be. And, and so they'll, they'll take an action that they think will protect them from losing the thing they fear to lose. And Judah's doing that. And in doing that, he's seeking his own will, and, and I'll say his own welfare, rather than asking what's right and what's proper for, for Tamar. And as human beings, we have this constant challenge that our motivation, even though spiritually we've been born again in Christ and the Holy Spirit's work in us, our sinful nature still will respond to fear rather than love. And, and the love of Christ is what overcomes that. But we don't generate that on our own. That comes out of our relationship with the Word of God and our relationship in, in congregational life, and worship, and participation with what God gives us and in our own families as we, you know, support one another, pray for one another, and then deal with the, the Word of God as the guiding, the guiding power, not our fear. So, you know, we look at our nation today, and there are a lot of people who are afraid. You can pick the fear, and there's lots of different fears that people have. But a big part of what happens in, in communities, in, in national, international politics, goes back to people fearing something and responding to the fear rather than the promise. And, uh, you know, broken world has that problem. 
And you, and I'm trying to think through this part. The, I've heard this reference numerous times. You know, in our culture, we talk about uh, birth control. What does it mean as a Christian? Mm-hmm. Clearly, with Roe v. Wade, we have abortion. We we talk about all of these things. And so, how would you teach and make sure we do it faithfully, according to what's there with Onan? Because um, sometimes, you know, a birth control is called yeah. Onanism, which I found interesting. I never know. I right. never heard that mm-hmm. before, but. But that yeah. goes back to the scriptures. How would we look at this, and what was the problem with this problem, uh, yeah, that he problem, was doing? Onan's problem really was he did not want to produce an heir for his son or his brother. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, if his brother never has an heir, who's next in line? So, see, there's there's some greed perhaps involved here, but we know for a fact it was a selfish refusal to produce an heir for his brother that was involved here. And and whatever the motivation was, it was selfishness at its heart. And and that's the challenge with attempting to deal with the question of of childbirth and and conceiving children is, I've had this discussion with different people. Does God desire someone to have a child? Hmm, good question. Did God desire Sarah? to have a child. Yeah, we did until she was 90, but yeah, he desired it. Okay, so we can't always do a one-to-one correspondence of this didn't happen because God didn't want it as much as it wasn't the time. But as human beings, the Lord gives us options, and one of the options is to say we'll refrain from attempting to conceive a child at this point in our life. But how do you refrain? One of the ways you can refrain, of course, is by refraining completely from sexual relationship and in so doing you don't conceive a child but but the motivation is is the, the challenge and the selfishness is usually the first problem and then you know the thing that i've heard over the years from people is well you know we're not going to have children until we can afford it well in that case you'll never have children because you can never afford children they're they're just they're very expensive but but the real issue there is when you have love motivating the relationship the desire is, in fact, to share a child. It's part of God's design for creation that we be fruitful and multiply. And so when we deal with conception prevention, and I think that's a better word than birth control, how do we, mm-hmm. how do we legitimately engage in conception prevention? And we ask, what does God command? What does God forbid? And as Christians, then we say, what does the Word of God teach? What does the Word of God not mention? And, and, boy, it's tough when people want to—it's like gambling, for instance. Uh, people say, well, gambling is sinful. Well, okay, if, if your motivation is to gain something you didn't have to earn, then maybe it's sinful. Uh, if, you're, if your motivation is to, you're going to try to, to beat the system and, and, and win, win uh, something that the racetrack doesn't think you can win, then maybe it's a different issue. So we deal with our sinful motivations all the time. But what's sinful for one person is not necessarily sinful for another. And so I deal with the issue of birth control. I know that there were those who thought for years that any conception prevention was sinful. Well, was it mechanical or was it re- restraint? Uh, you know, some people use a method whereby they time ovulation so that they know when the, the, the wife will be fertile and they refrain from having relations during that time in an attempt to limit the number of children they have or space children at a certain time. And again, 
So what does that say? It says, well, I'm going to try to use the knowledge God's given me to wisely manage my relationship and the gift of children. Now, is that trying to play God? See, you, we, we wander into some pretty, pretty deep weeds when we try to, to label everything one way or the other. And as Christians, we have to go back to this problem. The problem is my motivation will almost always be selfish. How do I avoid selfishness? And when it comes to, as you say, birth control or, or conception prevention, um, that's, that's the question, where's the foolishness involved? And getting back to the idea of abortion, in particular aborticide, that's almost always caused by fear. And, and the fear just applies at a different point in time than it does for those who may think they can't or shouldn't have a child now, so they're going to use mechanical methods to make sure it doesn't happen. If it's an attempt to avoid responsibility, then it's sinful. There's all kinds of reasons that, that you can't just throw out a blanket statement and say all of it's wrong. But on the other hand, you can't say all of it's right. And there's some people who want to make the Bible say what the Bible doesn't say. And that's challenge. That is that is a huge challenge. I appreciate, Pastor, how you are presenting that to us, because it is something that we don't want to make it simply. Well, that's a personal decision without any guidance. There, there's there is mm-hmm. faithful ways of guidance to look at this, to look at the scriptures. What does God talk about with being fruitful and multiply? What does He talk about the value of each human life? What does he talk about intentions and trusting in the Lord? And, and that goes into so many other issues that I wish, and it, it almost plunges us right into a gray area after we're in this very black and white area, mm-hmm. that all life has value, yeah. that, that God wants us yeah. to uh, be fruitful and multiply. Sure. And, and then it plunges us into this gray area of, okay, what about this, this, and this, which I encourage our listeners, number one, to pray for families who are, who are going through this process of, of having children or trying to have children and they're not able to, or uh, the single mother or the, the family that is really freaking out about they found out they're pregnant or, or pressure that comes from other family members. This is where the church steps up to be there for those who are going through this, to pray for those who are the barren, pray for those who are, who have like, for example, this, this weekend, we're going to have a pastor who's going to be installed in our district and he has 11 children, you know, thanks be to mm-hmm. God, you know, it's yeah, amazing. Sure. What, a, what a, I mean, they won't even fit in all in one pew. I mean, what a joy. Uh, and at the same time, we, we know that the, the kingdom is those for, who are not able to have children. And so you go through yeah. all of this mm-hmm. and Lord, dig us back in the scriptures, point us back to Christ. And Lord, make sure that we are valuing each person as you have died for each one of them. Pastor, yeah. we have about a minute left in our before our break. Any last thoughts before we go to our break? Well, I think uh, the focus here is that Tamar desired a child. Tamar mm-hmm. wanted a child. Right. Tamar wanted an heir to her first husband. And she saw her role as being the mother of a child. And in the midst of all this, God's plan was to give Judah an heir to fulfill God's promise. And Tamar was going to be the one to do so. And and he'll accomplish his objective. <laughs> God is going to do what he's going to do, and he works through people, even people, sinful people like us. But right now, I want to talk more about that on the other side of our break. We are studying Genesis chapter 38 with Pastor Stephen Tice, and we'll be right back.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back. We are studying Genesis chapter 38 with Pastor Stephen Tice of Emmanuel Lutheran Church and Pastor, excuse me, New Wells, Missouri. And Pastor, we've gone through the first 11 verses and it is, it's one of those realities. I wanted to ask this, that when someone might read this or when they do read it, 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 it presents us something that can really terrify us. Now, it's, you know, sin is terrifying. When we actually think about what it, mm-hmm. what it required, what, what was required of Jesus to take our sins, I mean, that, that nails us to the ground, no doubt about it. You know, his nails nails yep. us to the ground and makes us realize. But here we see something that we don't talk about much is this person was wicked. Onan, you know, did something wicked. Therefore, God just eliminated them. How do we mm-hmm. reconcile that as we look at all of Scripture and our and our lives today as Christian people? How would you teach that? Well, I think the, the first thing to, to recognize is that in His holiness, God can do what He chooses, and it will always be right. Even you and I, believing in God's Word, will still have trouble understanding why God is doing it. The other thing is to recognize that there's stuff God knows we don't know, and so our assessment is going to be by our ignorance. So what we have here is a God who says, hey, take me seriously, because what I say is important, and I am God, I can do as I choose. The book of Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. And and he is God and I'm not, as one person once put it, um, is is kind of the, the thought there. But the other one is that God is accomplishing his purpose. And the ones who are being removed are obstructing God's purpose. And that's the wrong place to be. But the the objective God has is always to bring salvation to the world. And so those who thwart that objective have to be removed for Christ to be sent into the world for us. And so occasionally in the Old Testament, the stuff that's going on is you know, frightening to people or they don't like the way God operates because they're using a human standard, sometimes their own, to say God shouldn't be that way. That's not our call. But the Word of God is very clear that God wants us to know He loves us and has given us an everlasting gift in Jesus so that we don't have to deal with that level of of guilt and punishment, but that Christ took it for us. So that, that God's love for us is evident in that Jesus stepped in and took what I deserve, what all of us deserve. And he had to make sure that happened. And so those that were obstructing that plan, he did remove from their obstructive place. And this is just a reminder that we see the effects of sin, and therefore we understand even more fully the depth of God's love for us to die for our sins. I mean, this is why you have to put Christ's goggles on, because it looks like God's a terrorist in this story, in this Mm -hmm. account. As opposed to it, it well, one, it's terrifying. But two, if you don't have Christ goggles on, or you're not looking at Christ at the center of scriptures, that's that's all God is. But in love, we see a God who's willing to take that death for us. 
Pastor, mm-hmm. I'm ready to keep moving on. Any 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 last sure. thoughts before we do? Um, well, I, I guess what I said mentioned before, he he departed. He went to his his friend who was uh, not one of his brothers, and then that's where he met his Canaanite wife. And he's he's still separated from his his uh, brothers, if you will. He's not back in that cluster, but later on in the book he will be. So this is kind of like a step aside from the family group to identify what's going on in the life of this one individual, and then it'll come back to the family group. All right. Well, let's keep digging through because the story, well, I can't say the story gets better, but it does continue. So verse 12, and God's grace is still above it all. So verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Dulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is in the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. He then, then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. Well, that, Pastor, that's just messed up right there. I would say that yes, in, yes, uh, yes, in yes, no yes. other words. Yes. A lot of yep. cultural themes here. So you want to break that down for us today? Yeah, well the, uh, well, the first part we're told is that his wife died. So now he is widowed. And in his time of grief, he mourns. And then after a cultural uh, period of mourning has passed, um, and, and he's, I wouldn't say over it, I would say he's gone through an adjustment period. He says, okay, well, now that I've done the appropriate uh, time of public grieving and, and I can do things, I need to get away. So he's going to go up to the, the place where some of his flocks are, and they're shearing sheep, and it's, you know, shearing time, so it's a legitimate reason to go and check on the, the situation, the business dealings, and his friend went with him. Uh, notice he's kept his buddy around him in the time of grief or sorrow. He has a friend, a companion, so that he's not alone. He's still apart from his family, but he's still got a buddy that, that's helping him. And now his daughter-in-law sees an opportunity. She says, I'm... I'm telling myself I'm never going to get an heir if I leave it up to Judah. I'll have to do my own plan. And mm. so, you know, much like Judah had his own plan not to pass the third boy on and have him killed, Tamar says, well, I'm going to do it my way. And the, the one bright spot here, in the sense that it's all, you know, as you said, kind of messed up, is that this is, this is a man who is a widower, and so he is by definition, committing fornication and not adultery. And it might sound really it, dumb, 
<laughs> I was gonna say, is I that comforting? It, I think it, <laughs> I think it's significant in the story that Judah is having a relationship with he doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law but one who has been promised an heir from the line of Judah. Mm-hmm. And this is the significance that his wife has died, so there's no other heir coming other than the boy that he won't give to her. So it's, it's options are all gone, except for Judah himself producing the heir. And in Tamar's mind, that's what's got to happen. And, and it's her plan. I, I'm not going to say it's God's plan. It's her mm-hmm. plan. And, and so she deliberately sets out to deceive him. That's clear. She, she's got a plan in mind right away because she takes off the widow's garb, puts on the, the, the veil, and, and I'm going to use the word, hangs out the red lantern in front of the tent at the crossroads. You know, it's a trafficked area. So this is a deliberate plan to catch or trap Judah. And, and it's for the purpose of producing an heir and in this sense, as we get a little further along, Tamar is on track that an heir has to be produced for Judah. The method is not one we approve. So, you know, right. we, we look at this and say, yeah, that this is the wrong way to go about it. The motive may have been good. The execution, you know, the end does not justify the means. Right. And, and the, gonna... the other challenge is, keep in mind, nowhere in Scripture is this condemned. Neither is it approved. It's described. Right. Right, yeah. right. Okay. It, it is it is important because you can fall off the side of the horse where you're like, well, the end justifies it means, so therefore it doesn't really matter about how you live out your good and holy life mm-hmm. as a Christian person, you know. So her intentions yeah. were good, but her actions were wrong. Therefore, it was okay because she intentioned it. Like, well, we don't want to become intention intention nope. mongers either because, you know, there's a lot of intentions that have had a pathway that are not good. And mm-hmm. but but we do know this is that God worked through it. This this I mean at the end of Genesis it is it is so important that when Joseph yeah. says what you intended for evil God did for good is a reminder of okay God is working through this all things in Christ mm-hmm. all things with grace all things in love and so like you said it's a description yep. of a very messed up story at the same yep. time we know that God works through all those things and thanks be to God he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Pastor, I'm yeah. ready to move on. You ready? Sure. You bet. Okay. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Inaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and, and said, I have found I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her and to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify those whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified and said, she is more righteous than I. 
since I did not give her my son, Shayla, and he did not know her again. Oh my, I mean, this is, this is, this is totally, I mean, they're going back and forth. Things get revealed. Can you imagine the Mm -hmm. wide eyes that Judah has when he realizes the signet and the cord and the staff are his? Oh, Lord have mercy. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is it. He's shocked. He he was under the false impression, and it comes out that this was a, a, a long-standing practice. This particular individual was always there, uh, and the term translation cult prostitute indicates it was part of a religious uh, activity mm-hmm. or some kind of a worship ritual. Now, was he engaged in the worship ritual? Did he see it as a cult prostitute? Uh, you know, you can always debate that issue. The point is, he was the one who went in and struck a deal. Um, you know, I don't have anything with me now, but hang on to these and I'll send somebody. And then he does try to try to carry out the, his end of the bargain, if you will. Um, his buddy takes the goat there and there's no goat to be paid. And the, the word is there's never been anybody like that here. And now the, the plot thickens, if you will, and the, <laughs> that there's no evidence that the idea even existed. And, and now Judah's going, what's going on here? Well, I know what I did and I know what I said. So. Let's just let her keep that stuff. Yeah. But then when, when he finds out his daughter-in-law, notice she's still his daughter-in-law, who went back and lived in her father's house, is pregnant by immoral activity. Okay. Well, she's pregnant. He was told she was pregnant through immoral activity. That's what he was told. Okay. He said, bring her out and let her be burned. She is to be burned for having violated the promise of, of marriage that she was given to a man that wouldn't give her his son. So this is, you know, this is kind of pushing the double standard category. And mm-hmm. Judah admits that when she says, okay, uh, tell you what, let me just send you the, the uh, stuff that I got from the guy who impregnated me. You tell me who they belong to, and then you go ahead and burn me if you think that's the right move. She, she basically is saying, I'll let you be the judge of what's right and wrong here, even though he's already declared she should be burned. And what we find out is that Judah identifies, I'm going to call it his own sinfulness. She has been more righteous than I. Now, here's the key. Neither one of them has been righteous. <laughs> no, no. But he says, he says she at least was, was more righteous than I am because I refused to give her the son that she has promised. And she has said, I will see Did we that lose past? Okay. born to your first son. Even though you wouldn't arrange for it, I will arrange for it. And so he is saying she is more righteous in fulfilling her role as the bearer of an heir than he was in the giver of the, the, the third son to conceive the promise, to fulfill the promise. And in so doing, he also identifies that the relationship he had with her was totally wrong. And he never knew her again, or put another way, that was the end of it. He didn't take her as a wife. He didn't say, mm-hmm. well, okay, since you're pregnant by my kids, I'll marry you. And No, he says, no, this is, this is not right. But clearly, she remains in his household. She remains as the widow of his firstborn son, and those boys will be counted as hers heirs. Right. We don't know there are two boys at the moment she's pregnant, but later we find that out. But so the, the status of her daughter-in-lawhood, if I can use that, is 
immediately restored by her showing the signet and the staff and, and saying, you know, this, take a look at the cord, this, whose are these? And, and Judah's response, these are from me because I didn't give you the, the promised son, Selah, you have carried out the right action to produce an heir. Even though you and I can't verify that her action was right, he's saying your behavior was better than mine. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> the key is neither one was righteous in God's eyes. Even though she might have had righteousness in Judah's eyes because she didn't do as badly as he did, the real righteousness all of us have is not how we behave. It's not what God does for us in Jesus. And and the, the phrase more righteous or more justified, you know, that, that term there, that has to be carried from this time into the question of who is the righteous one? Hmm. Who is the one without sin? And it's neither Judah nor Tamar. For that matter, it's not going to be any of Judah's sons until that final son of Judah through the family of David and Mary is born in Bethlehem. That's the true righteous one who is the only one born righteous. And and his life is the one that counts. And, and all of this is about God leading up to that promise. And so we look at within our own congregational life, within our own family life, we often compare ourselves to other people, say, well, you know, that person's a, a better one than I am, or that one lived better than I did. Or we look at the one and say, that one's worse than I am, and I'm better than they you know. But that's always, again, the wrong comparison. The, the standard we're called to is not other humans who walk in sin, but God and his word. And so that's why we always go back to the word of God and say, what does God say here? What does God call this to? And so we see that picking up here that, that he, he no longer has any relationship with her, I'm going to use the word, he now returns back to living according to the call of God rather than his own plan. And, and this is this is exactly right. When he used those words, she is more righteous than I. Well, you know, it's like the pod calling the kettle black, you know, like, well, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, which one has the speck? Which one has the log? Well, you know, in their eye. Well, they, they both yeah. they both are not in a good position here. But it, mm-hmm. it's that call. It's that call to this isn't right to a call to a holy life, you know? So it, it is significant mm-hmm. that, and he did not know her again. You know, he, he knows that was wrong. He moves back to the father-in-law relationship and and that that error um, comes from Ur, you know? And, and from here, God mm-hmm. worked through even the messiest of situations because in him, there is no darkness at all is, is a great right. way for us to continue to look at this. Now, now, one thing that is interesting to me, I did get an email from somebody that, that just said one of the struggles they have, this is what they say, one of the struggles they have is that often when somebody ha- gets pregnant outside of marriage, that sometimes we make it sound like that this child is less than or that the child is sinful. And <laughs> according to this story, it seems to make a clear distinction of that the were sinful. Any, uh, Pastor, that's, they're, they're, this person is, is definitely um, thinking about this situation and, and trying to make sure we make those distinctions in today's world as well. Any reflections on that, Pastor Orley? Yeah, sure. And I think the, the key there is to understand that the child has, has as much sin as anybody does because of our sinful human nature, but no child asks to be conceived. No child plans their own birth. Therefore, there, there's no way you can assign guilt to a child conceived through actions that were 
less than God designed them to be. And, and the, the, the call is therefore, again, to love and care for the child and also to love and care for the parents and to recognize that, yeah, they're sinners like the rest of us. The way the child came to be may, may not be a good way, but the child is there. And, and you can't go back to change the past, and you don't put a burden on the future by saying, well, that can never be undone, so from now on it's all over. No. It, you, you, we, we deal it with it the way God deals with us. He forgives our sin, and then he leads us into a path of righteousness. That's what we work with trying to help this, this individual who's got the unplanned pregnancy, the child, to have a, a wonderful, healthy life after it's born and, and support the, the mother and preferably the father, too, in dealing with the right way to be the ones who see that life is protected. And, and that's, you know, that's a tough, tough challenge. I know years ago there was always this dilemma, if I can use it, that uh, some parishes, when, when someone became pregnant out of wedlock, they would have the, the, uh, the mother come before the board of elders or someone and, and confess sin and ask for forgiveness. But almost never was there a, a desire to pursue who the father was and have him do the same thing. And, you know, that's, that's part of the duplicity we have as human beings because, you know, the, the mother can't deny she's pregnant. It's obvious. The father couldn't have been proven back to them necessarily, but now with DNA testing, of course, good. But, but the whole point is the confession and absolution process says the guilt is gone. Now let's deal with the, the steps of living with life as it goes on. So the mm. child itself is not the problem, nor should it be treated as a problem. It should be welcomed as a child who is given life by the Creator, and ideally given spiritual life in baptism and walking with the people of God all the way to eternal life. We continue through the rest of our text. We have six minutes left in our time. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out in the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, the, the, this is just kind of, I remember, I remember a picture a number of years ago where this, uh, they were doing a surgery in the womb, and uh -huh. when they had a little opening, that little hand came out and grabbed the doctor's finger. Just kind of that showing the beauty of that in, you know, in the womb, there is life and the beauty of this life and the connection that we have as human beings. And here, it just reminds me of that, that the hand comes out and it's like, okay, that's the first one. Then boom, hand goes back in. Other baby comes out first. Now you're like, oh boy, yep. who's first and who wasn't? <laughs> who's on first and, you know, what's on second? Anyways, Pastor, break yeah. this down for us. Well, the, the understanding is that this child comes out first. Partway, but the, the interesting thing to me was was back in verse 27. The, the, the uh, one translation uses the word "behold" there, which is kind of the the Hebrew "looky here." Surprise, surprise! It was twins. Nobody knew. Uh, but the thing that struck me is, apparently they were in one amniotic sac. Now my wife and I have twin sons, and I've got a number of twin nieces, nephews, great nephews, great nieces. So you know, twins don't exactly run in our family, but they trot in once in a while. And, and so this, this issue that both of them were able to be 
in the birth canal at the same time says that they were actually identical twins. Mm-hmm. They shared an amniotic sac. Okay. That fact is biological stuff. You can debate back and forth, but the fact that one child's arm comes out and the other one's born at the same time means that both both of them have to have their amniotic fluid bursting at the same time, and that almost certainly puts them in one amniotic sac. But again, that's you could you could still debate that. It doesn't matter. The point is, the human beings thought this one was first, and God says, no, not your way, my way. I send the one I want first, and it's not the one you think it is, because they you know they marked them with a scarlet thread to make sure they didn't confuse which was which. And God said, you got it wrong. I'm giving you this one first, Perez, this one who brings a breach, this one who breaks through. I'm going to break through problems of the world, the problems of this family, the problems of this relationship, and send the ancestor of the heir who is promised. And so God is the one that breaks through. This is a breach of God into human activity. And I think that word then, Perez, that name, helps us to see that God's breaking through in the midst of this convoluted, confused, human um, tragedy, if you will, that ends up with with a good ending in that the promise is fulfilled and an heir is is born. And later when Jacob is blessing his sons, this this promise gets even further enunciated that this child, Perez, is going to be the one who shows up as an ancestor of Jesus. So we see God breaks through, and he breaks through in our lives, too. He does it through his word. He does it through Christ's love for us. He does it where we gather around his gifts of the word and sacraments. He does it in our relationships with other Christians. God breaks through to us. We don't break through to him. He reaches the wall and comes to meet us by sending his son and still sending his word to you and me today, which is the great news. He's always coming to find us. This is one of the realities of this chapter that we continually focus not on ourselves, on the fruitfulness of our own actions, the fruitfulness of other people's actions, the, the, the happiness that we'll have in this life, but our focus is always on our Redeemer. Pastor, with that in mind, we have about a minute left before our time is up. How would you summarize this chapter and encourage our listeners in Christ? Well, the two things I would, would say are, Number one, our plans will often not be what God has in mind, but God can work around us when he's not working through us. And, and the other thing is to always go back to this question, who have we walked away from to get advice? Who do we need to walk back to that follows the same God we do to help us search out a way through challenges and problems? Because remember what I said, Judah left his brothers, but now he's going to go back to them. And see, this is part of the, the movement within the text is, away from the people of God, hanging out with the Canaanites, things get confused, now go back to the people of God and rejoin the family of promise. So the Lord is always calling you and me to come back to the family of promise, finding strength. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together and greet one another with a holy kiss. And all the phrases that Paul uses in his epistles to say, you're one family in Christ, stick together and help each other, because we should and we can. God uses us that way. Pastor Stephen Tice of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri, Missouri, giving us God's strong word from Genesis chapter 38. Pastor, uh, pa- excuse me, Pastor Tice, thank you for bringing us his gifts. Thank you, sir, and God's blessings with you and the people of Minnesota North and the uh, 
Long summer days, slowly drawing to a darkening winter haze. God's blessing. <laughs> Lord have mercy. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner, District President of the Minnesota North District. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands. <laughs>